Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I'm Chris. I am Preston. And this week we are talking Sigmund Freud's fantastic 1919 essay on the uncanny. Oof. It was good. It was good. I liked this. Uh, it was definitely not as related to me to his essay on fetishism in terms of its quality and also its experimental form. So, like, mm. he introduces it, and he, he paints with a broad brush, right? The first paragraphs are explaining basically that in the history of aesthetics, we've championed the one side of the coin, the beautiful, but not the flip side, the terrifying. Or, mm. in other words, the flip side of the aesthetic coin of the beautiful wouldn't be the ugly, <laughs> you know, because both have to be alluring in a certain capacity, yeah, this uh, this essay, like I mean, right off the bat, that was something I was like, oh yeah, shit, that that tracks. I like that. Like, I can get behind that because it's even on like a more shallow level, it's it's something you'd think we'd have gotten better at. Well, and I think, but it's still like even with you know, especially like AI generation and yeah. manipulation of images, like we've kind of destroyed that beauty standard as well because we've been so obsessed with that side of the coin a little i think i think we're always in the if there's a binary on the two i think it's always going to be more powerful on the side of the beautiful except mm. for in specific areas so he references of course the stories of hoffman but we would reference lovecraft and all yep. the other people that we philip k like dick philip k dick um i mean i would say that malaparte is so more actually malaparte does a great thing because he really does ride the uncanniness because you never know if everything's real yeah so but i mean we're doing a little bit of a sidetrack here but yeah help me navigate the language of this here because language is important um when really like dark terrifying things we often de would define it as like, oh yeah, it was beautiful. Like Malaparte, like that is certainly something I've thought about reading mm -hmm. it. But if I ever described that book to someone and been like, beautiful, beautiful, the yeah. the horses' heads on the frozen lake, beautiful. Right. I so there's a scene in Malaparte where a group of horses are frozen in waves in a flash freezing event, and the heads poke out above. And what makes it specifically uncanny is their arrested motion and disembodied head floating above. The fact that we know it should be connected to a body, we know that it should be um, in motion, and by arresting the motion and disembodying it, it produces the uncanny effect. It would ruin it if the horse then began to, I don't know, like talk or something. Like yeah, Then we're the moving uncanny, into like yeah. the cartoon-esque, uh, you know, the, uh, the sausage on the nose stuff that he's talking about that yeah. eliminates the uncanny. Yeah, it's almost like Freud posits the uncanny as this tightrope you have to walk between mm. realities. I think it's something that really good authors that... Like, I don't leave the book being like, ah, yes, our champion has won. I feel great and enlivened by it. But no. I kind of, you close the book and go, woof, that was incredible. Uh, the tender is the flesh. Yeah. So that, that one might say that might be on the side more of abject horror. Yeah. yeah. But. Well, I, I liked that this, there's definitely some connections. As soon as we hit the dead body part of it, I was like, ah, and this was definitely influential on Kristeva and our abjection it's yeah yeah it's talking about the uncanniness of the dead body as you know the support for the, the the primal side of well the dead body so <laughs> the corpse is abject the doll is uncanny there's a difference there the corpse it's so, a different type of language i would argue I, I would I would agree with that. Yeah. I think that is uh that's one of the things that I think Kristeva kind of um cuz she she was big into Freud, right? Oh yeah. Big She's Freudian. A I uh I think that um 
because he only briefly talks about it towards the end and it's a little um i don't know like weak almost yeah because reading it i'm like i don't know that like even with how difficult Kristeva was to read, that was one very clear point. I was like, yeah, that is... That is undeniably Yeah, there. that's... We've moved beyond uncanny. That's... Something else. That, yes. A different species. All right, so, first of all, Freud posits that there's two general access points, I'll say it in a weird way, for the uncanny. The one is that he says this. The uncanny element we know from experience either arises when repressed childhood complexes are revived by some impression. So this is categorical of his example of the doppelganger. Mm. When the doppelganger is you from a different time. From a vastly different time. But there's there's this recognition you have to have that isn't right and it isn't wrong that becomes unnerving and obviously uncanny. Mm. The second is, he writes, or when primitive beliefs that have been surmounted appear to be once again confirmed. So the example of this one is like, you know, I'll, I'll just make one up. The scientist who believes everything is material, there's no such thing as spirituality, but some coincidence in reality happens so much that he doubts himself. Mm even briefly doubts the rationality of his own beliefs the door opens every time he enters and he goes oh it's wind and after he emits that sound it only closes <laughs> you know or something like that would be deeply uncanny <laughs> and and it doesn't say that ghosts exist or ghosts don't exist because as soon as ghosts exist they're monsters you know but that in between liminal state is where yes. the uncanny lies so Getting back before I derailed things, we were oh, talking yeah. about the structure of this, and that's a little different from a lot of the stuff. Oh, yeah. So we had our very impactful opening here before we uh, get to uh, another little section I thought was interesting. Well, it's interesting because it struck me as categorically Heideggerian. Because so Heidegger, especially in his journals, but in his seminars as well, is, is deeply concerned, usually obviously with ancient Greek origins and etymologies of words, but I mean, there's entire passages that are just etymology. Like if you look at Heidegger's seminar on Heraclitus, the vast majority that I remember reading it is concerned with the etymologies of words. And so I was very surprised to get to this and being like, oh, wow, this feels like a different thinker because he doesn't really do this very much. I've read so much Freud at this point and it's just it's the only time when he's like we need to take a step back and you're like oh we're taking a really big step back yeah (laughs) but the point of it is that he traces in German unheimlich which literally translates to unhomely and heimlich which translates to homely as having a sort of point of merger where the uncanny emerges with that, where the language between the two gets mixed together. And so it was, I was still entertained by his long etymology thing, especially when he finally gets to just German. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, after going through some uh, somewhat intense, italicized German words oh, yeah. that... You know, probably take longer to work out if you don't know German than the rest of the essay would take to read. Right. He kind of launches immediately into some really interesting stuff here. Like and this he, is our he, first he goes, type of the uncanny, which is a repressed, I'm going to say, version of of you. Like, like one, one thing is he, I, I think that what's uncanny has to involve the whole of one's former identity. I don't think it can like just be like, oh, I used to wear glasses and now I wear contacts and I see myself wearing glasses and what's uncanny about that is that now I'm wearing contacts or vice versa. The reminder can be a tiny thing, but it has to bring the whole with it. 
Yes. It has to bring the whole fucking yes. thing. Otherwise, it's like it's just an attribute, and it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's it's not a reminder of the past. It is a. Uh, it is. Well, because because then because then you, you can you can get melancholy. Another one of Freud's concepts that we're going to obviously do in the future, where like you see a former version of yourself and you just get immensely depressed. <laughs> you mm. know, like things like I remember I had a coworker where I was making fun of the song yesterday, everything da, 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 now it seems as if it's here to stay. And I was like, blah 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 blah. And then my coworker went, Hey, don't make fun of that song. It's really impactful. And he was older and working at Quality Dairy, and I felt like such a dick because oh, clearly this invoked not the uncanny, but like a deep deep sadness he had a moment he had a moment kind of oh i know and i was totally in the wrong but kind of funny also. Yes. I, yeah, I didn't know i didn't know i didn't, it meant I didn't know whereas what would be uncanny would be i go on the radio and i don't catch that it's michigan state old recording of a piece that i was on and then there's a french horn solo that's me <laughs> and I don't recognize it as me, but I'm like, there's something really uncannily familiar about that. And then once it's there, it's suddenly this really horrible feeling of like, well, it's not, but it is, but it's not, Ooh. but but it is. And then ad finitum forever, you know? Oof. Yeah. And I don't I, think uh... it would work if you're bad. Like if you hear yourself playing piano and you suck and you just stop playing piano, I don't think that would be uncanny. I think it would just be, glad i didn't do that it's the opposite of melancholia is i you know or not melancholia but like uh, that type of sadness of like oh well i made the right decision in my past i recognize myself's history as a continuity if you mm. recognize a continuity you're not experiencing the uncanny yeah so it's like if you're talking about this in like musical progression uncanny would not be watching yourself from years ago playing go ooh. I used to play like that, but now I don't. It, it no, would... it'd be like, I used to love that girl, and then that same love feeling showed up briefly, and you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, no, no, that doesn't make any sense. The feeling hasn't changed, which brings us to the quote that we just have to say, I think, just right away, because it is, I think it's the root of why this type of psychoanalysis can be so deep when he goes our unconscious is still as unreceptive as ever to the idea of our own mortality like you revisit something it shows up and it's like no time has passed it's, it's static in this weird way it's like it shows up again and you go but that's not where we are in time oh <laughs> oof I experienced this a lot with, uh, like, the family Christmas parties. Oh, yeah. Yeah, tell. Do tell. So, I mean, when... I don't know if I, in my, you know, entire memory, have ever missed one of these. Especially the, uh, the one on my mom's side. You know, you go to Wyoming for... I don't think I've missed one of those but like they used to be super like exciting thing when i was a kid it was so mm -hmm. much fun but as this family has expanded and grown the uncanny started to settle in when like every year there's a group like group of kids i'm like where did these people come from are these friends of family members who are these like they look vaguely familiar but i don't know who these people they are. look vaguely familiar because there's a relationship there genetically you know and so you have to deal with that but like the vast majority of these people it's yeah. once a year i see them so they never look the same no but they're still the thread of familiarity but the farther I've pulled away from, like, the family traditions, because yeah. the vast majority of my family is still very much a part of the religion, it's, there's just some stuff that, 
has an extra layer of unsettling to it. Right. Because it used to be so familiar, but now it's just not at all well, a I part think that's of my where, life anymore. I think that's why time in psychoanalysis is just not time in the sense, because like if you ask a person like about their life, they're going to give you some linear narrative. Like, well, I was here, and then I went over there, and then I was that, and there's that, and that's and that's fine. Like, we all sort of do those like narrative trends, and there's a great in the Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow. If I remember right, there's some study where it's like you go into a room and they're going to ask you questions about the meaning of your life, but some people find like a dime or something, and other people don't. And the people who found a dime rated their whole life as having been better than the people who didn't. I've heard about this. And it's like, well, that really tells you something about how... Well, one thing, it definitely tells you something about how fragile our own sense of our narrative is. But what it tells you on a deeper level is how weird time actually is as soon as you posit some object like the unconscious. As soon as you have an unconscious that doesn't accept that time you you have to deal with that in a way that acknowledges its strangeness mm. like a like because like and the uncanny always flips either into a positive narrative like oh i was at a bad place when that was going on and now i'm in a better place okay bad to good that's my narrative or oh my god i was so happy and now i'm not good to bad mm. and the uncanny really isn't any of those it's 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 the end of the cut worms lyric castle in the sky where the ending of it goes on this long journey through basically the the traverses of fantasy mm. but then at the end he's floating in the sky and he gets this image and he's like oh i see someone and the last lyric is haven't i seen you before <laughs> <laughs> and that's this is very uncanny. And that song for everyone listening is uh, Castle on the Clouds by Cut Worms. And I think it should be required reading for anyone who's going to do psychoanalysis. It's, it's <laughs> that, real helpful. That song. It's real helpful. <laughs> um, but yeah, I know. I think that like this idea of your former self returns, I think is one of the deeper elements of the essay the the idea first of all the idea that a doppelganger is first of all in auto ranks words our defense against death as a child or infantile stages and then later returns as a harbinger or signal of our death yeah it's uh and that's complicated yeah very simple words but that is not a five cent thought <laughs> that's a dollar thought <laughs> yeah the uh that i feel like a lot of movies and stuff also try and try and deal with the whole doppelganger stuff and just don't but like what, what do you say of it like fight club doesn't do it well at all there's nothing uncanny in fight club you're just wrong yeah <laughs> you're just wrong yeah. and then he says him at the end like a more uncanny thing would be like um, the messages and symbols that are left behind by the main character in Memento. Oh, it'd be, it'd be closer. I don't. I still not convinced that that's uncanny, but it, it's closer than Fight Club. Uh, uncanny for me. Yeah. Like one of the first things I thought of when I read this, especially this, when he uh, talks about. Um, oh man, I'm gonna butcher that name. Yench. It's Yench? Yeah, Yench. Oh, German. German. He, uh, Freud relies on the theorist Yench, who's not a very famous one, but wrote a, an essay that Freud uses as a launch pad to get us to where we're going to go. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay, this is, so, is Yench's quote. In telling a story, one of the most successful devices of, for easily craft, or creating uncanny effects is to leave the reader in uncertainty whether a particular figure in the story is a human being or an automaton. So. Yeah. It's. Do androids dream of electric sheep? 
Yeah, but, and Blade but, Runner. But from a from a point where it could only do it in literary form, like like the, the even the word automaton, like these early automatons they were making, don't they're gonna have the uncanniness of a doll. But when we get to the literature of the '60s, I mean, we see it come out. I like after reading that this, point is like a is like a a predestining of a thought that hasn't yet come to fruition, and it's it's one of those beautiful things when you read philosophy when you realize that the ex, that the originary thought you can only pepper with examples that come after. Ooh, so it's it's one of the reasons I really liked this essay because in our previous Freud essay there was a lot of stuff that we uh. I mean, that was kind of a, a rag session for a lot of it. But we still kind of rounded on the, like, the dude was pioneering thoughts. But this one is... Isn't there so much of it that's just th true? Th this essay is just, <laughs> like, like alright, he, uh, he definitely hit a lot more of the target with the scattershot on this one. Yeah, it's it, it yeah. just... There, there's a lot of stuff that is spot on. But in, yeah, one of the core principles of, you know, Blade Runner and, uh... Android's dream of electric sheep is your main character you you don't know if he's an automaton yeah hunting other automatons but the binary is on the side of human so you assume all the signifiers are telling the truth that they're human so but you don't make the flip to realize that all those signifiers are also lying to you about the robot because there's a flip there. It's a very it's a very back and forth dialectical thing. You experience Harrison Ford is real, and then well Harrison Ford is I guess real in the movie. I don't know, but let's the, imagine it's Harrison. It's the least real. Har I mean, the movie's great, but it has got to be Harrison Ford's worst acting it's, it's performance not good. ever. So let's it's assume like let's, for, for argument's sake, let's assume that there's more liminality involved there, and that there's much more at question about his humanity. Also, keep in right? mind the book dives way deeper into these concepts of than course, the movie does. Of course, and I mean, I'm assuming I mean because he's a great writer, like way better. But like, assume that Harrison Ford, fifty fifty, right? But your first experience of it is going to be he's human. But then your first experience of the automatons is they're human. Then you have to go back and question your perception of the first object, and mm. that that motion is uncanny. Ooh, that's that's, I, I, the, I, that's the structure of it for me. It's one of the most uncanny books I've. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that that's a pretty consistent thread in a lot of what PKD does. Is the uncanny is he's not like a lot of other sci-fi writers where he's pushing the boundaries on like what if. Um, you know, right. Well, wouldn't you, okay. A lot <laughs> Just, more of it is like, yeah, this is likely the path of things and this is a scary outcome of it, but then we're adding, there's, there's a lot of layers to PKD. Oh yeah. But I, um, the whole concept of like the familiarity and the mix of, um, physical and... Oh, what does he call it in the essay? Um, psychical reality? Yeah, yeah. Is, like, that's core concept to PKD. I think well, of, like, all I think it's because writing. he's he's also doing a bit of a reality. So, PKD, in, in being probably, in real life, a Lacanian psychotic, like, there's a lot of reality testing going on in his books, which have that possibly therapeutic aim of, of getting him to some to some signifiers that stabilize a little bit instead of slipping back and forth and around and you know some arresting of that motion to help you and not let you lose the plot on what everything's supposed to be signifying so yeah i i think it's a good point i think pkd is there i think i mean we got to address the elephant in the room which is that wouldn't isn't this concept now in its climax like, okay, so Anna was dealing with this thing where it was like a gen AI-generated image thing to help you with, um, <laughs> it was helping you design <laughs> templates, and... We might have to post a link We to should this. find this, yeah. So, so what it was, it was like, you post a template, and it fills it in around the edges for you, and 90% of the time it does it really normally, and it'll do a weird, like, it'll try and make a train station... And it's just a graphic for like some nonprofit image thing, like for a for a 
poster or whatever and it just fills it in with whatever but occasionally because it is recognizing that you're doing some sort of flyer it goes oh flyer here's other things that are on flyers and so then you'll get garbled language <sighs> people that aren't people that look like Francis Bacon paintings. Monks <laughs> that are burn victims? Monks that are burn victims. God, just, there and just very... were some incredible things that yeah. came out of this. Mm-hmm. And I felt like the more Anna tried to fix it, the more AI was like, no, I got this! I have a vision! I have a vision! Now. Here's... And it just... It fucked up Russian general is what you want. <laughs> yeah. Strangely aggressive writing that isn't actually any real writing. It just seems yeah. You look at it; it's not a real like language. something that might be dropped. Because on a flyer, a you'll have a like a like a like a yeah yeah. You'll have language in the bottom right corner that's like thing, and so it just blah, 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 blah. just some sort of random nonsense that aren't Can't even just do letters. The warm Ipsum stuff. Why does it have to give us like is. Is this the language of the future I'm looking at? Are we? Is this Cthulhu? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think that, like, and this gets to a concept that was written about a lot later called the Uncanny Valley, which posited in the second half of the 20th century. And the idea of the Uncanny Valley is that, like, whenever, whenever you see an image of a person, you can only mess it up so far where it becomes not... A real person it becomes an animated person becomes not a person whatever but that in between there becomes a point where it's so close to being a person that it isn't quite right there's something slightly off about it toy story one i was gonna say polar express but yeah oh, okay no polar express is the literal bottom of the bell in the uncanny valley yeah it is it is so the first time I came across the concept of the Uncanny Valley, they used Toy Story as an example, which is still a great movie. Yeah. But every time you see Andy, it's just something slightly off. Which, and it's the doll. You know, I mean, this is just fun the doll, fact, right? Like, all the kids that come to the party in the first movie, the mm-hmm. reason they have hats and everything, they're all Andy. It's all the same model. Yeah. They're all just Andy because it. Yeah. Animating people's faces is hard because when you're doing 2D animation, it's a lot easier in that medium because it's inherently cartoonish. It's the sausage on the nose. It's. Yeah. It's in the realm in which we accept this is the image. But when we started getting into 3D generated movies, another really good one that like sometimes good and other times you're like, oh, ugh, is the, uh, have you ever seen the Christmas Carol with Jim Carrey? Oh yeah. As Scrooge? Oh yeah. Gary Oldman as Cratchit is horrifying. Yeah. That, that is, that is uncanny. Well, I, think, I know yeah. that face, but something's n- not right here. And that goes back to his example from E.T.A. Hoffman of the of the doll, and, and it's even I think that Yench is the first one to make that connection. And I think that like, I think that's all fine, and it's all really fun and creepy. I think that like, Freud's positing of them are more complicated. Very much like so. these are these are uncanny in the sense of the of the uncanny valley and all that. But the two that Freud brings up, just I would take it to a whole different level. Yeah. So that like my concept of the uncanny yeah. had come from like the uncanny, uncanny valley yeah. stuff. Yeah, exactly. So reading this, I was like, oh, oh, there's a lot more than just it looks human, just not human enough. It's well, like then think about it. So the narrative before of like, oh, I was in a bad place that returns it but now i'm in a good place that gives you nothing but like an ego boost you don't have to confront the fact that you were that person which psychoanalysis would really want you to confront Mm. is that you were there you know where it was there i shall be is one of the rallying cries of, of psychoanalysis one of the things i find really interesting about this essay is and correct me if i'm wrong but he doesn't really talk about dreams at all and if you think about it i think i i think i can think of some reasons why but i think i had a dream that was uncanny i think a lot of dreams i have are uncanny i don't know especially 
Not uncanny during the time, like uncanny. Well, okay, it's just, like, yes. Like, I don't think there's a lot afterwards, that are. Afterwards, yeah, like the, afterwards, that it's often like in reflection. You're like, oh, yeah, that stuff didn't seem right. But it's very rare, and I yeah. think you're starting to edge in on some lucid dreaming when you start to acknowledge the uncanny in your dreams. I was really so I did a ton of lucid dreaming in freshman year. And why I stopped was because I was so good at it that I had two thoughts that made me stop. The first was, I can't get away with this now. I'm not dreaming when I was dreaming. Okay, so think about it. If you lucid dream well enough, you think you're awake. So then you can't do the thing that you were going to do when you're lucid dreaming, like take a bunch of drugs or whatever. You went too deep. So you, you so went you go, I'm, too deep. I'm awake. I can't, I can't ah, do the ah, thing because if I do the thing, I'll get in trouble. I was so good at lucid <laughs> dreaming. I just ruined it all. Well, I ruined it all. And then the other thing was like, and this is very much to a lesser degree, and it was usually funny, but like, how do I know I'm awake now? And like, that was stupid. But the other Without one, lucid dreaming, I've had those. Yeah. yeah. I think a lot of people have had those dreams where you wake up and you're like, but but my life, it's the pillow episode of Adventure Time where you wake up and you're like, oh, but, yeah. but I had a life. I had memories and an existence. That is the uncanny. That within a tiny period of time after waking up, you're like, no, I was like, and I... So, okay, wait, hold on. We gotta linger on this. So, for everyone <laughs> listening, so... The pillow episode of Adventure Time, the main character, Finn, has a adventure in a pillow fort where he goes into a pillow world. He's depressed after a breakup. Oh, he's depressed after a breakup. So it's actually kind of Freudian version of dreams. So then he goes into the, the dream world and he has a sort of wish fulfillment where he gets a wife, a pillow wife. And he's the man of the household and he lives his whole life in this tribe of pillow people. He's like a farmer and owns land and has human pillow hybrid children. And then he comes back and he wakes up. And the episode ends. <laughs> and and episode you just ends. go, ha! Oh, another one is, so that, that would be, un, so that type of dream I've had. And I think we've all had those. And that one, I don't know if Freud has those types of dreams. There's evidence to suggest that Freud has trouble with experiencing the sublime. Like, in Civilization and Discontents, it opens with a preacher... Like, he had just written um, The Future of an Illusion about religion, and a preacher had written to him about how, like, well, disagreeing with the book, saying basically, like, my experience of religion starts with an oceanic feeling of vast cosmic proportions. And Freud goes, basically... No idea what he's talking about. <laughs> I've never had this feeling before. And even even in writing the essay on the uncanny, what's so amazing about Freud is he kind of says like, I don't know, I don't know what I'm talking about, <laughs> right? Like he doesn't. He says all these things that we feel, but then he basically admits that he doesn't really have these feelings, right? Like he says it early on, like he doesn't it's... he doesn't have these emotions. And so this that's his really most, weird. His most convincing essay that I've read from him. Seems like the one, he's like, I don't know if I really buy this. It's like his least confident. Well, it's also, it's also not phenomenology. He basically, in saying my experience with the uncanny or fast and far in between, what he's really saying there is, this isn't phenomenology. This is structurally psychoanalytic. Mm -hmm. Like, this is not, but then for us it is. Like, this is just totally my experience yeah, with reality. Yeah, there and is. So, I, uh... It's very odd. So that is, that is a very odd thing with this is mm -hmm. we open it with some Heideggerian style stuff, but we don't do any phenomenology. Because he doesn't experience it. He doesn't, he doesn't have the experiences that he, he's always talking about others' experiences. Yensch, the, the story, the, but then, and this is where, this is where, like, I, I'm sure that someone has critiqued Freud along these lines, but it would be a dumb critique of, like, well, you know, he didn't have it. Because the proof is in the idea itself. It's just such a strong and clear notion. But he should have talked about dreams. That So, like, that type of dream. And the only reason I can say that he didn't talk about it is I'm just assuming he didn't have that type of dream. <laughs> and because, like, in the interpretation of dreams, 
That's his dreams are dreams just totally had. different. Yeah, he's never like, had a dream in his life. <laughs> no, he's not. He lays down and then he wakes up and he's like, I must study this thing people call dreams. Nobody else, it's not like a light switch. You don't lay down and then just get up and you're feeling better. Now, I will I will hand it to him. His his reading of his own dreams are phenomenal. They're great. But the types of dreams he has don't include these types of dreams most of the time. And I could be totally wrong on that. From what I've read of interpretation of dreams, we don't get the the sense. But so like one of the dreams I had that I think was like I would say it was more a dream of melancholy is I dreamt that like my brother died, but like it wasn't Kevin. It was this brother that's never existed who I've known my whole life in the dream. And, and, so, and you wake up from that shit and you're like, oh, I felt horrible I, for the whole day. Oh, oh, Dave, Dave, N- Dave, who the fuck is Dave? Dave, who, why do I feel sad? Well, and then it was uncanny <laughs> in the dream. It wasn't. And, and then when I wake up, I'm, I'm just in mourning and mm. crying. And then and by the end of the day, it's uncanny. Gonna, cause, cause Dave's not real. <laughs> And I don't think Freud had that type of dream. I just like I'm just gonna say I think we've had some different types of dream. And he would probably say that the what he would read into that dream was that the the lost object of melancholy became the lost brother. It was a displacement onto the this object that isn't real and in a sort of way that only dreams can do. And so it was still a return of the repressed, but what was repressed was actually an absence. Right, because there was no Dave, and there was no Dave before, but what returns is the grief of losing the absence. Oh. Which is something that only a psychoanalyst could talk about. Like, you you, you really really wouldn't talk about that dream in a different framework. Like, the only way I can explain that dream is, is that framework. But that's uncanny. Another one is, like, have you ever had a dream where you loved a girl, and you did love that girl? It was just, like... A wrong time or like you loved a girl in third grade and then you dream in like high school about loving that girl as if you were in third grade and then you wake up and you're like literally all of this is wrong yeah. <laughs> so like i don't know what's going on here i just recently had a dream in which i did experience the uncanny in the dream which There were just enough markers that, like, it was real and relevant enough to actual life, but there were enough of these little things that I was like, the, this doesn't compute. And then as it proceeded, there was a point where I just woke up and was like, that was all wrong. <laughs> so yeah, a couple yeah. nights ago, I had a dream that uh, Kari my wife is is driving us back from somewhere and it is not going well yeah um and at a certain point after running off the road a couple times i'm like car pull over are you are you drunk which for a little context here, Kari is the type of person that's like, I've had one drink, I'm not getting behind the wheel ever. Yeah, Aggre- yeah. Like, yeah. aggressively responsible with this kind of stuff. Right. So that's the first, like, red flag of like, wait a minute here. This seems wrong. But the next statement is when I was like, what is happening? I'm taking over. Is when... Kari says, well, it's because of your friend's partner. They get me fucked up every time we hang out. You know how we are when we hang out. And I'm like, but that's not how either of you two are ever. Yeah. Because I don't know if I've ever experienced Anna being like, hey, Kari, shots? You know, this Grey's Anatomy's going great. How about some more shots? And that was the moment of, like, taking over driving the car. I was like, these things aren't right. Something's not right here. And then I woke up. And that was uh, one of those dreams. It's where the 
Where the fuck did all that come from? So, you might not like Freud's reading of that dream, which, I mean, obviously it's going to be my reading, but so, if the uncanny is the return of the repressed, of doppelgangers and former selves, and Freud in certain dreams does this, where, like, the ego gets basically transplanted onto other objects that you're a part of in the dream. So... Mm. Basically, what I would guess Freud would say about that dream is that everything about it makes sense in terms of why you felt uncanny, because Kari was you, and the partners were all just flipped. Because you're not as responsible. <laughs> I mean, by the way, Preston doesn't drunk drive. But like, <laughs> sorry, I know that's really mean to do, like, uh, like psychoanalysis. So, I don't know that's... if it's that simple, but there might be some weight to that. I'm like, yeah. But doesn't that, it's uncanny because the, the doppelganger is the wrong image. <laughs> it's Cre- kind of creepy. It's creepy, for sure. As I think that would be, Freud does that maneuver all the time. Like, that person was actually you in that dream. Like, because remember, in dreams... Freud's fundamental idea with them is that you don't you don't have to be the character you are in real life in your dream. In fact, most of the time, your ego is someone else in the dream, mm. which is really a weird thought. It's very, and very creepy. It makes dreams really really annoying because then you have all sorts of random anxieties that show up about something going on. But no, that's pretty uncanny. I think that's a good. I think that's a categorically good uncanny dream. Um, I think I just freaked out Preston. <laughs> I just, I, like, I mean, there's, there's something to it. Like, I mean, it's, there aren't all these direct parallels because just as I am not someone to drive drunk, especially if I'm transporting Kari, mm-hmm. Chris is also not the type of person that's looking to get me absolutely like obliterated before I have to drive home. No, but we definitely encourage each other to get obliterated and not drive home. It's... I, fair enough. But the, the, the driving is a major uncanny part of it. Cause oh, it's, yeah. I don't know. It's something the other would never do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also think that, like, um, like, when you have a dream where you're going to have anxiety about a thing. They're not uncanny because you kind of know the stakes. Like I have an anxiety dream because I had a test or I have an anxiety. Mm. I had a lot of anxiety dreams when the semester started and I wasn't going back to school because I felt like I was forgetting that I had to go to school. You know, right? Like you forget that. I, that, that might be a mix of where a lot of these weird fucking dreams I've been getting this last week have been coming there from. You go. It's been, I thought like, oh man, I'm finally going to be getting great sleep now that I'm done. I got that last paper in. A few nights in, it's been some weird nights of like, oh shit, I got to do that thing. There, there isn't a thing. There isn't a thing. There isn't a thing. Well, and I think, okay, so getting back to the rank idea, auto rank, another great, we'll probably read some auto rank at some point. The double staves off which, which uh, Freud makes a parallel between that and the human, the idea of the soul, staves off one's mortality. Because in the idea of the soul, it's really obvious. The soul is what lives on after the body dies in that concept. But in the idea of the double, when it returns, it returns as a harbinger of death. But what's really important is that the, I think what returns as a harbinger of death is the fact that the object itself doesn't know that it's not permanent because it's the unconscious returning. So the unconscious is impervious to the idea of, or, or resistant at least to the idea of one's mortality. So then when the soul returns, when you're 40, how can it not be a harbinger of death? Because your body is closer to not being. So it's like, Deeply convoluted, but okay, I mean, maybe. Well, shit, is that the, the midlife crisis? Is the doppelganger making its second appearance? I think that, like, midlife crises are vast. 
I think it is. I think it is every. I think it's my answer would be yes. So and. as yeah, sure as someone who kind of did it at the quarter yeah. life point, yeah, I um like our experiences in life are so vastly different. It's kind of amazing that it's become a cliche though. That like there's a lot of people who do it, but not everybody does the same thing. Like not everybody. The religious, the religious become unreligious, and the non-religious become religious, and the, uh, some people buy a boat and a sports car and a motorcycle. And some people shoot up, you know, sixty people in a field in Las Vegas. Uh, I'm sorry, I actually don't know enough about that shooting, but still, you know, there's there's this idea in the midlife crisis of an acknowledgement in consciousness, like in the ego, in, in what's, what's conscious to you that your time is running out, obviously. But then there's this horrible idea that the time remaining to you is going to pass quicker than the time you had. Like the enjoyment of the future is shorter lived than the time you wait. You spent more time wasted in the past than you have to recoup it. I mean, to be fair, I feel like after 21, every year gets fucking faster. Yeah, well, I think I think that's there, but I think that that brings on the idea of something that returns where it returns at this time. Yeah. And I don't mean this time, I mean it's time. The time of the it. It shows up at, at this time, and, and when it shows up, you you have to deal with that. And I think I think, again, like, if I'm heading towards some type of psychoanalytic reading here between the uncanny is the uncanny um, can, if brought into focus when it loses its uncanny quality, can bring about melancholia, can bring about the always forever lostness of the lost object which uncanny doesn't have that the uncanny is the person returns and you're just not them and you're in this misrecognition of of identities whereas melancholia you're you're you you suddenly get lost in the timelessness of having lost the object so being a little inexperienced in freud is there an opposite side to the melancholia, like that recognition of the doppelganger and the uncanniness of it, instead of instead of falling into, down, yes, per, like pushes you into something different, like an existential if you were moment. Gonna, yeah, yeah, if you were gonna simplify it into what we were doing before, your I bad then, now I good moment, like it is. I think it'd be different for every person. I, I think that the structure of the opposite would be some degree of reason where where you're able to gain distance but at the same time bring that other into close view and survive its relationship to you like you you bring in the other the the double and you somehow are then even then able to surmount it so like like okay why isn't everyone obsessional compulsive because they say no science tells me that's not real <laughs> i know that's not real and like that's like not like i think that like the vast majority of people if you I, I mean this is totally painting with way too large of a brush but i i think that like the experience of someone who has what later would become something akin to ocd or repetitive compulsions and all those types of things in in their behavior like i i think those are pretty close at hand to general neurotic structure as a whole like i don't think that it's a very foreign idea mm. i think i think we want to pretend it is but like we all do weird repetitive behaviors i mean how many times have i flipped this fucking pen so <laughs> like or scratched my head or something you know i am <laughs> like, often especially in class i'm yeah. constantly spinning a pen right or, or just doing some really repetitive behavior and that might it might function differently but i really think that when you bring in that other in that sense that you're saying well let's go with the so this this is moving from the first view that freud has to the second which is the idea of um a surmounted belief cracks open its tomb just a little bit right so let's say you were a man of god Let's say you were. Let's say you are not a man of God. I got this one a little. Yeah, bit. I, I understood this one. Oh yeah, for sure. 
So, the part two of this, which I think he kind of extends it a little bit farther than my own experience, because mine mm-hmm. is very much more focused, but his is almost like past ancestral experiences that through science we've overcome, you know, kind of crack open, but in a far, like, more focused, relevant term, like, first leaving the church, that is a very real uncanniness in the beginning. Yeah. Is, uh, like, when you spend, you know, 18 years of your life as a part of this organization that is literally the center of the structure for everything you've been involved with. Yeah. Your family is grafted to it so tightly. It is everything. But, uh, when you first, you know, like when I first took that step outside of it, you know, finally taking the stand and, you know, I don't buy it like yeah. enough stuff stacked up where I was like, yeah, I just don't think I believe this. There are still, for like a few years after, and I think this is different for a lot of people, there are still these little bits and pieces that kind of make you go, oh, but maybe. Oh, but and if I just, do that, I'll go to hell. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And it, uh, I mean, that, that took a while. Like, that was, that was a good chunk of time before that just wasn't an alarm bell for me anymore with things well isn't and i mean i mentioned hell on purpose because like you know so many people who get out of usually evangelical religions but i'm assuming mormonism has a similar version of it where what's the one thing that they can that they have the most like so many people get out and they're like yeah i don't believe this i don't believe that i don't believe that but i'm just deeply afraid of hell right and yes and i don't think that alone right there is uncanny on its face value that's just like cognitive dissonance that everyone admits what's uncanny is like when you don't believe in hell you have a dream that you go to heaven which you also <laughs> don't believe in. yes but then you've reached salvation in your own narrative which means you get to go to the heaven that isn't real <laughs> but that's from the old structure <laughs> Like I, that's a really weird one. I'm I'm rather happy with that ridiculous analogy. That, no, that was that. That's fantastic. But I did want to bring something up, tying yeah. this into our Lovecraft. Yes, yes. So, the way that Lovecraft defines our primal horror is pretty much in direct contrast to how Freud is defining it here. That like that primal fear is the unsettlingness of the familiarity versus Lovecraft that it's like the unknown. Yeah. Like the most primal fear is the fear of the unknown can be true for primal consciousness, but we don't have primal consciousness. Like then and it's not even that it's that, that type of primal consciousness. I picture sort of like a fight or flight response. As, mm. as the people talk about, whereas, like, what Freud is talking about is, like, it's almost a hold my beer moment, right? Because it's, like, it's so much more true that what is holding your mental life in certain places is the, you know, the resistance of the unconscious and the notion of death than it is, like, oh, like, I have to go and flee from the basilisk or something because it's unknown, so, tying this into what we talked about towards the end of our last one, yeah, where this fear of the unknown kind of ties into Lovecraft's blatant racism. Yeah. I think that Freud's concept of the uncanny ties in really well with Lovecraft's fear of the unknown, and those two together create H.P. Lovecraft the racist because they're people they're not animals but they're not like him but they still are kind of like him and that combination of the fears Lovecraft was like I ain't unpacking this fuck that and just kind of went the the racist route you know it kind of 
Yeah. Kind of took the exit route on that one rather than unpacking, you know, two concepts that I think might explain some stuff there. Like, like, like what he, his, like, what's abject for, well, like, like what's uncanny to Lovecraft is the fact that they are people. Like, imagine the first time he came across a minority that did something he couldn't do. Could you imagine just yeah, the loops in his brain? And not just, like, something he can pass off as, like, oh, yes, that's what they do. Like, something he's tried to do and failed and then watched them do it. That might be a bit of an uncanny moment for him. I think it would be. Because it's like, no, you... You can't be people because you're unknown. But my own, like, experience here Mm -hmm. doesn't fit in there. And that, like, that intersection, I think, is something that would be incredibly uncanny for Lovecraft. And especially with his own belief that, like, the unknown is the real fear... Yeah, maybe you were a racist because you believed that. And the mix yeah. of that with the familiarity. Well, I would add, I would add that, like, what what would be the uncanny would then be that his doppelganger is black. Oh. Oh! So, to take your opinion one step farther, right? Like, that would be the... That would be exactly what you're saying. And that would, like, he, he couldn't... He, that... Well, I don't, think, I don't think Lovecraft is smart enough to perceive people no he would just put things in camps and move on yeah but but like if he were able to that would yeah like both of what we're talking about that would be that would be deeply that'd be like a great you know ska album or punk name is lovecraft's black doppelganger lovecraft's black doppelganger but okay wait hold on a great but 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 like this uncanniness i think that like when i first saw dave Chappelle and eddie murphy like Dave Chappelle does the does the great one where the trade wife swap, which is great. But then but then Eddie Murphy does you know white people on a bus. You remember this? It's Eddie Murphy's like, I dressed up in white face to go on a bus and see how white people live their lives. And you see Eddie Murphy in white face, and it is first of all amazing. It's great, but I do wonder if like, because when I saw him change like i went oh that's kind of interesting my perception of different features just on skin color changes location but if you are a racist even that alone might be uncanny because you would realize that the features you think are superior in your own race don't actually exist they only exist as byproducts when the skin color changes holy shit (laughs) like for example okay like like think about this idea let's say a person who has no race they're just a person and they have a big nose we're imagining the people who come back in time in the South Park episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but, like, let's just imagine it's a person and they don't have a race yet. They don't have a skin color. It's clear, translucent, or whatever. So then a racist would say something racist if the person's skin color was black. You'd be like, oh, it's just like, oh, that's, that's just so, like, that race. But when that person's white, they'd just be like, they have a big nose. The, the thing didn't actually change at all. Oh. <laughs> right? Like, nothing actually changed about the face. Yeah. And I think... I think somewhere in there is something helpful. I, think, I, I need to be smarter to dive faces. into this shit. <laughs> yeah. Like, something about that might be good. Like, like I think... I mean, again, most racists today are just deeply unreflective people. But, like... I think in a lot of racism, there is a fetishization of qualities. And one way to address that fetishization of qualities that they think are white is that when you change the skin color, the quality stayed the same. You were just imbuing it with something extra. Oof. That is the racist fantasy. Oh. Yeah, I think you're kind of spot on there. Yeah. All right, well, I think I think you are also spot on. And why Lovecraft and Freud? Yeah, and I wanted to pair them. You know, I wanted to pair them. It was a nice, uh, right next to each other. Because in the beginning, you're like, man, right off the bat, he's making 
the polar opposite claim about like what your core fear is where all yeah. other fear spawns from kind of a thing because lovecraft went on and on about how it was all about the unknown i don't i don't know the i think the uncanny at least in my own experience mm -hmm. i can buy a lot more yeah. Because a lot of the times, I mean, the fact that we're attracted to horror, yeah. exploration, all of these things, I don't think all of those people were just like, I'm not afraid, I wanna die. There's, I think there's an attraction to that. Yeah. Whereas I have never experienced an attraction to the uncanny. That is a, like, deeply unsettling thing that I think touches a lot closer to primal fear than, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's one thing to say you're a breast man. It's another thing to masturbate to disembodied boobs floating in the air. Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 no. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> uh, it's, it's too spot on and way too disturbing. <laughs> Got him there. Uh. <laughs> and I'm, I, think, I think that is a good point. I think we did, I, I got everything I wanted to say. Oh, yeah, feeling? that was that was a fun one. I, I really enjoyed that. It was good to be back after a little hiatus there. Yeah, and tune in next week for We Do Not Know Yet, but we'll be doing it next week. Something. It's a surprise for everyone on this one. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Until next time. <laughs>